Proverbs 18.21 tells us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And James agrees. Our words have the power to either speak life and blessing into people or curse and tear down. James says in chapter 1 of his letter, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Wow, those are some strong words, aren't they? If anyone thinks he's religious but can't control the words coming out of his mouth, his religion is worthless. Many of you heard the little childhood rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will What a load that is. That's not true at all. I mean, it's pithy, it sounds good, right? And yet, most of us here know that words can hurt far deeper than fists. Some of you have never forgotten someone else's ill-spoken words. They've been stuck on replay in your mind for the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years even. Whether it was a parent or a teacher or a bully or maybe even a pastor, They've long forgotten that they even said those words, but they tend to live rent-free in your head. No, words can hurt us long after broken bones heal. Some of you might have even heard some incredibly hurtful words this week, or perhaps even this morning on your way to church. But words, though they can damage us severely, they can also speak life into us. Who doesn't love to hear, thank you, or I believe in you, or you can do it, or I see something special in you, or when I hear you sing, you sound like an angel, or God has gifted you, and I can't wait to see what God does in your life, or I'm so encouraged by you when you do such and such a thing, they have a tendency to fill our sails with wind. Those words can also form a playlist in our mind, can't they? What would happen if we as a people were able to gain control or power over our tongues so that the words that we speak bring life rather than death? I'd want to be part of that community. I'd want to be part of that people. And James agrees. In fact, he says what we use our words for tells us a lot about what's in our heart. That's why he spends an entire chapter devoted to taming the tongue and casting a vision for us of what our words can actually do. James 3, verses 1 to 12 not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Our words matter, don't they? They have great power. With them, we can tell the truth about God. We can speak value and build others up, and we can praise and bless the Lord. Or with them, we can use them in incredibly destructive ways to lie about who God is and to tear others down. But as Christians, we're called to use our words differently, to build up, to praise, to tell the truth about God, to be a blessing. James tells us four simple things about our words in these 12 verses. The first is that they tell the truth about God. Words can tell the truth or they can lie about God. Second, that they reveal whether or not we are spiritually mature. Third, that they have great power to heal or to destroy. And fourth, that we should use them to speak life and not harm. Guys, this isn't a really complex passage. It's very straightforward with tons of illustration. So we'll walk through it quickly. Our words should tell the truth about who God is. Not many of you, he says, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The reason that not many people should be Bible teachers and preachers is because there is a greater scrutiny, a greater judgment for those who claim to speak on behalf of God and teach things about God. Why? Because God wants the truth about himself being told. And bad teaching hurts people. And when we lie about who God is or what God desires of us, we lead people into all kinds of damage and wreckage. It's an awful thing to lie about God. And Jesus reserved some of his harshest words for those who not only spoke lies, but they spoke lies about God and how to come to know him. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, he says to the religious teachers and the Pharisees, What sorrow awaits you, or woe to you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Jesus never sinned when he used words, and Jesus used some harsh words. Now, depending upon your temperament, you might read the words of Matthew 23, and you're like, get him, Jesus! I speak like that because Jesus speaks like that. And you've completely missed the fact that at the end of the chapter, he weeps over Jerusalem. And so if you're not willing to shed tears and weeping over people in lostness, you don't get to speak words that are that harsh. It's a package deal. If I claim to speak on behalf of God but tell lies, I not only mislead people, but I keep them from knowing truth about who God is. That's why it is a weighty thing to preach and teach and to speak and say, God says this or God doesn't say this. It's why we as a church generally, when we preach, 
We preach through passages of scripture that God has spoken. We don't just take a topic and compile all that it said, even though that wouldn't necessarily be bad. It shifts the center of authority from the, from the Bible to the preacher. But rather, we open up the word of God and we say, this is what God's word says. This is what God's people are called to believe about him and to see as good and beautiful and true. And so if we're going to do that, we better be darn sure that that's what God's word actually says. But does this just apply to Bible preachers and teachers, or does this apply to all Christians? Well, in a sense, it applies to Bible teachers and preachers, and some of you guys are thinking, well, great, I never want to do that, so I'm off the hook. And yet, you have the Spirit of God, and you are speaking to people about God. You are sharing truth with them about his story, interrupting your story about what the heart of the gospel message is, because you've been given the Spirit to do so. And so you should actually also be sure when you speak on behalf of God or share what God's word says that you actually know what he says. Meaning it should take you a lifetime to, to study the scriptures, to know the Bible. Because when you speak, it is a weighty thing to speak on behalf of God's. Your words matter. And God cares that you get it right when you speak of him. Second, our words reveal whether or not we are spiritually mature. We see this in verse 2 and in verse 7 and 8. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now we know that there's only one perfect man. His name is Jesus. All of us, all the rest of us, men and women who have come along, we are not perfect. And so when he says if you're able to bridle or control your words, you are a perfect man, he doesn't mean morally perfect. He means that you are mature. You are healthy. You have a healthy faith. You live out sound doctrine. You are a perfect man in that kind of sense. Verse 7 says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so it, it reveals whether or not you are spiritually mature, but I think we can all agree, it's hard to do. That, that controlling the words that come out of my mouth, even this week, has been incredibly hard. And not everything that I've said this week has brought life to people. Sometimes it's brought harm. It's easier to tame a tiger than to control our words. It's easier to charm a snake than it is to control our words. It's easier to train an elephant to harvest trees or to paint a painting with its trunk than it is to control our words. It's easier to get a, a dolphin to jump through a hoop or to ride on its back as a dolphin trainer than it is to control the words that come out of your mouth because mankind has done all of those things. And yet we struggle to contain and to tame our tongues. Let me say this about spiritual maturity. You might be a brilliant theologian. You might know the Bible backwards and forwards. But if you cannot help yourself on social media... You need to get, if you, if you get into every little fight and constantly post inflammatory things, you need to grow up and mature in your faith and understand the power of your words. If you need to correct everyone who says something even slightly wrong all the time, you need to mature in the faith and use your words well. Does that mean Pastor Kyle doesn't believe in standing up for the truth? No, not at all. 
Just saying that wisdom is required in speaking the truth. Where you speak it, when you speak it, how you speak it, it matters. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When we speak hard words, are our cutting words like a surgeon's scalpel that bring healing? Or are they like the wild thrusts of a sword that simply seek to kill and to destroy? Jesus spoke hard words, but they were words of healing and words of correction. In 2021, as I preached through I actually, uh, James, I actually did an entire series or sermon on online words and engagement. And I don't have time to recap all of that, but I had 10 commandments for online engagement. If, you, if you're good with Google or if you just go to our website, you can find it. But later on today, I'll probably post just those 10 things as a way to help you think about how to control your online words. But controlling your words, whether it's online or in person, is what spiritually mature people do. Babbling everything that comes into your mind is what immature spiritual people do. So don't speak rash words. Instead, bring about healing with your words is the point. Even though the tongue is such a small organ in the Bible, or in your body, not in the Bible, it has a disproportionate impact on our lives. And he gives us three illustrations to kind of illustrate this. A horse and a bit, uh, the rudder of a ship, and a tiny spark that ignites a forest fire. He says in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A small bit placed cleverly into the mouth of a horse can steer a thousand-pound animal. Now, if you were to look at that, you would say, I probably need more than that to, to control and to tame a horse, but really you don't. In the same way, your tongue is small, but your words are big. Second, a huge ship is steered by a small rudder. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Are there any ship watchers here? You like, to, you like to go down to the canal? A disproportionate number of them were in the first service. Go figure. You have to get up at like 4 a.m. to go do this. You know what I appreciate about it? The pictures. From my warm bed <laughs> that I was in until 7 o'clock in the morning. Amen? But if you're a ship watcher, you probably know already about the Paul Tregutha, or Tregutha. Or you can correct me and give me the right pronunciation. It's the largest of the Great Lakes freighters. It's 1,013 feet long and can haul 68,000 tons of cargo. The crazy thing is comparative to that size, the rudder of that ship is relatively small, and yet it can navigate it in and out of the harbor through the canals. It's truly amazing. Ships in, G in James's day were, were driven by the wind and the sails. And even though there were all of these large contraptions to capture and harness the power of the wind, there was this relatively small rudder that actually determined where the ship would go. In the same way, your tongue is a small peace. Your words seem like a small thing, but they are a large thing to your life. Finally, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James reminds us of how forest fires begin. On September 5th of 2020, an expecting couple in El Dorado Park, Ranch Park in California, decided that they were going to have a gender reveal party. And in order to reveal the gender, they were going to light a little firework or smoke bomb, a pyrotechnic that would shade either blue or pink so that this young family could celebrate together the birth of their new child. Unfortunately for them and everyone else around them, it sparked a crazy wildfire. 71 days later, 22,744 acres had been burned, 20 buildings had been destroyed, and five communities had to be evacuated to the tune of $42,269,660 of damage. But the question you're all thinking is this, is it a boy or a girl? (laughs) And try as I might, I could not find out. I don't know. It's going to linger and haunt you, and someone who's better with Google is going to be able to find out and let us all know. But have you ever had that moment like where immediately after the words leave your mouth, you wish you could just reel them back in? You're like, oh, no. Because the minute they're out of your mouth, you know the relational carnage that they are about to do. But like toothpaste that's been squeezed out of a tube, you can't put it back in. Why is it that... Thoughtless words like that create such relational damage. It's because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter five, or 6, verse 45. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words reveal what's actually going on inside of our hearts and what we actually think about another person. Now, I know there are verbal processors who are like, sometimes words come out of my mouth and I don't even believe them. And yet, if you don't have a good place to process some of that stuff, those words can do incredible damage, can't they? James closes these verses with a reflection. How can such good and bad things come out of the same mouth? Shouldn't be. With it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's just pointing out this reality that there is, we praise God, and then those created in the image or the likeness of God, we use the same mouth to curse and to tear down. Brothers, he said, this should not be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? That's absurd. Or a grapevine produce figs? Never going to happen. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He says through these cleverly devised metaphors, we should not use our words to tear down and to curse, but rather to bless and to praise, to speak life and not harm. I would just say for every church that's been taken out because of poor doctrine, there's another like it that has great doctrine but has been destroyed by gossip and slander, and poorly spoken words. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 tells us, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Guys, real talk? 
I have such power in my words to make being married to me either a delight or miserable. As a father, the way that I use my words can either be a joy and a delight and a grounding to my children, or they can always feel beaten down and be a fun like they never measure up. At work, as I lead the staff, it can be a fun, encouraging, exciting place to work, or it can be a miserable existence to show up every single day. In large part, based on how I use my words. Now, if all of us thought about our life like that, we realize real quickly how how powerful our words are. What's it like to be on the other side of you? What's it like to be married to you? Or to be your roommate? Notice I, I picked those close relationships that we see day in and day out because here's the thing. We're good at impressing people from afar. We can look shiny and put together and spiritual from afar, but but the people that know us, the people that are around us when we're not trying and we're not performing, often see who we really are. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If that is not a charge to, to voraciously pursue your sanctification and see the Spirit of God transform who you are, I don't know what is. Because it has a massive impact on the people that are closest to you. Who you are will come out. And it will either be a blessing or it won't be. It will speak life into people or it will tear them down. You guys tracking with me? Do you feel that? I hope you do. I mean, even even teenagers in the room, the way that you guys use your words, it matters. The way that you talk to your friends and your parents and your siblings and your grandparents, it matters. And you can be an incredible blessing or you can be miserable. So, hope I've stated my case. The real question is, how do we do it? How do we use our words in such a way where we bring life and blessing rather than curse and discouragement? Because, you know, I think most of us here want to speak life. You'll notice that I've left a fair amount of time where we can get really practical. How do we tame our tongues and how do we bless rather than curse? I've got seven things that will help you to restrain your speech and seven things that will help you to bless with your speech because that's the kind of pastor I am. It's always a list for you. No, not really, but this is something that could be really practical, okay? So here we go. Now, notice in this, we are firmly in the realm of wisdom or, or godliness lived out in everyday stuff. This is not doctrine as much as this is wisdom and advice on how to be a blessing and to restrain and control your tongue. So seven ways to control your tongue. First, pause before you speak. Don't say the first thing that comes into your head. Put a little distance between when you hear or what you, what you hear and when you respond. James tells us in chapter one, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so a little distance between your hearing and your response looks like this. Don't send the email back right away that you want to compose. Let it marinate a bit. Calm down. Don't just dismiss the criticism that might come, but reflect on it. That was probably pretty hard for them to say. Ask yourself, 
were they intending to harm me or wound me? Or were they trying to be helpful? And let me just tell you, it's not always the same answer. There are some who want to harm and who do want to wound, and there's a category for that. But most people don't. Ask yourself, am I reading or hearing this rightly? Maybe they just botched their communication. You should give them the same kind of grace that you would like them to give you if you sent something that was maybe ill-spoken or not worded well. So put a little distance between what you hear and you respond. But don't just pause. Number two, be a good listener. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The words, so what I hear you saying is, have preserved many, many relationships. Active listening techniques like that is often one of the aha moments when we do pre-marriage counseling as a couple. What I hear you saying is this, and sometimes they're like, I didn't say that at all. I didn't intend that at all. Let me tell you what I did say or what I intended to communicate, and all of a sudden the crisis is averted. Because what you thought you heard and what was actually said sometimes are not the same. Don't just pause. Be a good listener. And one of the best ways that you can use your words is to be a friend that listens. Tell me more about that. Well, that's really interesting. How did you arrive there? Or, wow, that's, that's something that I'm going to need to think about. I, was that hard for you to tell me? Don't just pause. Be a good listener. Number three, ask yourself, is this helpful to say? Is this helpful to say right now? Am I the best person to say this to you? See, something can be true without being helpful, right? We've all experienced that. Something can be very helpful, but when spoken at the wrong time, is incredibly hard for us to hear. Like, most of us respond better to private correction and criticism than public, right? You embarrass me in public, I'm probably instantly going to defend myself. That's just human nature. However, if I praise in public and I correct in private, I have a lot better chance of winning someone over, don't I? Simply by choosing a different forum or way in which a hard truth was communicated. And it actually shows love, doesn't it? Additionally, as you process through this, a journal can be really helpful. Especially if you're an external processor. Not all external processing is helpful, especially if you're processing it with the one who's hurt you. Sometimes you say things that you don't even agree with, and you've created a ton of damage. And, and just to be clear, your social media account is not a journal. Amen? Amen? Some thoughts are not for public consumption. Amen. And if you buy yourself a journal, you will not regret it five years from now when you read it in your journal, not on your memories. Also, if I have to bring a word of correction to someone, relationship matters. Am I the person that they can hear this from? Am I the right person to speak this? And this is what I mean by that. The stronger the relationship, generally the more truth that something can handle. It's like electricity, if I were to put a speaker wire between houses to send that much electricity, what am I going to get? A fire, right? Because a speaker wire is not built to handle that much voltage or wattage or whatever else it is, okay? The electrical engineers can clear this illustration up later. 
but the power lines do, right? So here's what I mean by that. If you have a strong relationship with someone, it can probably handle a lot more truth than uh, maybe a, a casual or distant relationship with someone. Meaning, if you are close to them, maybe you are exactly the person that needs to speak this to them. Or if you're not, maybe your relationship can't handle that level of truth. So you guys are thinking, well, Kyle, truth is truth, and they need to hear it. Yes. But we want to love people in communicating with them, and we want them to hear it well, right? And just, be, just to be clear, we all have stuff that we're not good at. We all have some constructive criticism that we could hear, and it's hard for us to hear. Number four, before speaking, ask yourself, what is the most effective way or the most effective place to share this? Probably not Facebook. Is this an in-person meeting? Is this an email or a text? Probably not. Tone is hard to communicate with those. In-person communication is the best because the most amount of non-verbals in your heart come through. Yet sometimes you have to weigh, should I call them or should I wait a week and a half and just let all the emotions build up on this? And let me tell you, there isn't a right or a wrong answer. There is wisdom that needs to be applied, but we need to control our tongue. Number five, if I have something hard to share, make sure that I, I don't only share hard things. Now, anybody who's ever been to a leadership or a business class is often aware of what's called the sandwich technique, right? Some of us see it a mile away when we're like, oh, you're just buttering me up because you're going to just drive the sword through my heart, right? <laughs> say something nice, then say what you really want to say, and then follow it up with something nice. There's some wisdom in that, right? But underlying that principle is actually the reality that if you're going to actually speak criticism or truth to someone, that better not be all that they hear. Parents, if the only time you open your mouth is to correct your kids, you're doing it wrong. You are. You need to correct your kids, but you need to praise them too. You need to tell them what the expectations actually are. And you need to, the best parenting is when you can catch them doing something well and praise them for that. Oh, it's amazing how they respond. Number six, don't gossip. Just don't. It's character assassination of the worst kind. If you wouldn't say it with them there, don't say it. If you wouldn't say it in the way that you're saying it, don't say it. If it doesn't pertain to the person that you're actually talking to, don't say it. Gossip kills as many churches as poor doctrine does. Anecdotally, I don't have the data for that. I don't need the data for that. You guys have probably felt that. Finally, don't straw man your opponents when debating with them. What I mean by this, and this is almost all modern politics and most of the debates that you see happening publicly are not in good faith. A straw man is basically articulate the worst form of an argument so that you can easily push it over. It's like a man made out of straw, right? When that happens to you, do you feel loved? Do you feel well represented or do you feel lectured and like spoken over? You feel lectured and spoken over. You're like, that's not what I believe at all. I can push that over too. So if you're going to actually engage with someone in, in some kind of serious debate, state their position in a way that they would say, yeah, I agree with everything you said. 
state it in a way that's even better than they could articulate it, and then say, but have you thought about this? Again, we're not dealing with doctrines here, but rather wisdom lived out in the practical stuff of our speech. Don't straw man your opponents. Now, for the positive. And you're like, that's not an exhaustive list. No, it's not. You guys can probably all share areas of wisdom on how to control and restrain your tongue. It's hard to do, and we need each other. But for the positive, how do I speak life into people? Number one, resolve. Resolve to be the person who speaks life to other people. Be determined to use your words to build up rather than to tear down, to encourage rather than to always correct. Jesus spoke incredible words of blessing and hard words. One of the times in John chapter 6, he shared a message that was really hard for people to hear. And there was a lot of of his would-be disciples that, that bailed in that moment and said, if that's what he's about, I'm out. And so Jesus turns to Peter and the rest of the disciples and he says, are you guys gonna leave too? And Peter says something profound. He says, Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of life. Now, you guys aren't sharing the words of life like the eternal son of God who came to take away the sins of the world and teach us about the kingdom of God are. Yet, you can be a breath of life and fresh air to the people that you, you speak to. And so resolve to be the kind of person that's going to speak life rather than death. Number two, look. Look for ways to speak life into people. There are very few people in this world that are over-encouraged or too secure. Most of us are discouraged and often incredibly insecure. How cool that you can speak life to them as they speak life to you. Be creative in catching someone doing something great. Whenever you feel a spark of envy or jealousy rise in your soul when you see someone else and their abilities that are greater than yours, one of the best ways to kill that is to praise them and genuinely compliment them. And thank God for gifting that person in such a way what a gift it is to the body of Christ. Pay attention to whoever catches your eye. It's amazing how many encouraging things that you think throughout the day. You're like, wow, she's really pretty. Say that in a non-creepy way. <laughs> or maybe don't say that if you're a guy and it would be, make things weird. Or someone provides great customer service. Tell them. Or someone has a great smile. Say, you really light up the room. Or if one of your kids displays an aspect of godly character, acknowledge it to them and tell them why you're so proud of them. Look for ways to speak life into people. Walk into a room and say, God, who do you want me to encourage? Which is number three, plan. Plan to speak life and encouragement to people. Set aside time every week to maybe write some thank you notes, to send encouraging text messages, to make phone calls for the sole purpose of encouraging someone and telling them how much you admire them or appreciate them. Maybe take time in your city group to just pick someone and everybody can go around and say, this is what I admire about you. This is what I'm encouraged by in your life. You may think that sounds hokey. It is incredibly life-giving. Not only to the person who's hearing it, but everybody else as well. As we actually give voice to the things that we think. We do this in our family with birthdays. We go around and we give presents. But one of the things we do when we eat a birthday meal is say, now what does everybody, everybody love about Lydia? Or what does everybody love about mom? And we go around and we say something that we genuinely appreciate. And you know what? It's not life-changing. But those things add up as we speak life into each other. Number four, pray. 
Ask the Holy Spirit, who needs to be encouraged today? What a difference it would make if every day we set aside time in our quiet times to ask God, God, who do you want me to encourage today? Who do you want me to encourage this week? Some of you struggle to hear the voice of God or to to understand his leading and his nudging. I bet if you ask him that question, it'll be very apparent there'll be people that pop into your mind. It's one of the ways you can grow in listening to the Spirit. And my guess is it's not the enemy if it's to encourage somebody. He doesn't usually like that. Number five, find a truth from God's word, a promise, an attribute of God, and share it with as many people as possible that day. I came across this truth today, and I wanted to share it because it was so meaningful to me because of what I'm going on in life. Or I was just hit by this, and I was, I was just worshiping God because isn't it amazing that he did this or that he is this? Something you're already probably doing, you're just sharing that. And watch how it encourages not only you as you share the joy of experiencing it, but other people as they're like, yeah, God really is good, isn't he? I needed to hear that. Thank you. Number six, ask. Ask other people what their words are to encourage you. Not just, hey, will you give me a compliment, but rather, what has hit you lately in God's word? And why? What are you encouraged by these days? What are you grateful for today? And let their words rub off on you. Which leads maybe to the last one. Practice gratitude. What are you grateful for? What are you thankful for? One of the greatest things that you can possibly do for your mental health is to practice gratitude. Study after study after study show this. If you're battling, if you're in the blues, if you're struggling, practice gratitude. Rubs off not only on you, but other people as well. Here's the thing. You could come up with a list of seven more things. But at the end of the day, are you going to be someone who speaks life or harm? That's the power that you have in your words. Now, as we close, I just want to talk to the person who maybe hasn't used their words to build up, but has a long history of using your words to tear down and destroy. Maybe you're feeling some conviction this morning. Let me point you to Jesus, the one who is perfect, the one who never spoke an ill word, not even once, the one who, when slandered, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If you are trusting in him, he did that for you. And the good news of the gospel is that you will be judged on the basis of his performance, not your own. Here's the thing. If heaven was populated only by those who spoke perfect words, there would be one person there. His name is Jesus. But it's not. It's populated by those who admit their ill-spoken words and trust in Jesus and what he has done for them. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life, not one ill-spoken words, but then as a perfect one, he offered himself in your place for your sin, bearing in his body the penalty for your ill-spoken words. And he paid them in full. He brought them to the grave. But they didn't stay. Jesus rode trust in him. The life that he lived is now credited to you. The death that he died paid your penalty. And the victory that he now has is your future. You're like, well, what do I contribute to that? Nothing. You receive it. You believe it. And so for all the sinners out here who have spoken harmful words, myself included, we rest in Jesus. What about the person who's here today and it's not... 
your own words that haunt you. It's the words that were spoken to you. The ones that live rent-free in your mind. The ones that you can't unhear. The ones that make you feel worthless every single day of your life. I have good news for you too. Jesus speaks a better word about your life. In him, those are not the things that are true anymore, but rather these. You are chosen. You are righteous. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You have been made new. You are adopted. You're a son or a daughter. You're a bride. Spotless. You are loved. That's a lot better Rolodex to play around in our head, isn't it? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for this clear call to use our words to bring about blessing rather than cursing. God, we fall short, and so we thank you for Jesus. But we ask now that the Holy Spirit, the new power that is at work within us, would renew our hearts so that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth would speak blessing and life. God, would you make us a people, a congregation, a community that speak life to one another for your glory, for the sake of the city. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.